0: And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at With that being said, here's this week's teaching. I want to tell you about a friend of mine named James. James was born into a conservative family in South Carolina. His dad, James Sr., worked for a civil engineering firm. He was in charge of large road projects across the state. James Sr. was who many would call a man's man. He went to the Citadel, calluses on his hands, chewed tobacco day in and day out. He spent his weekends watching college football on TV. One day when James Jr. and his dad, James Sr., when they were watching college football on TV, James Jr. was about four years old. They were watching an Oregon Ducks game. He saw their jerseys, James Jr. did, and and he casually mentioned to his dad that his favorite color was yellow. James Sr. quickly muted the TV and quickly shot back to James Jr., no it's not, don't be silly, boys don't like yellow. Eventually, James Sr. began to notice that when they watched football together, and especially when they went to football games together... His son was generally more interested in the band performing at halftime than he was in the football game itself. When James Jr. was in middle school, James asked his dad if he could join the band at his school, and, and his dad told, them, told him that before he could join the band, he had to play two seasons of football first to see if he liked it. So after two years of playing football, mostly hating it, James Jr. asked his dad again, can I play in the band now? Now? James Sr. took his son out for a burger that night and said to him, Listen, men play football, they don't play in the band. If you want to be a man, you need to learn how to do manly things. Much of James Jr.'s childhood was him being encouraged by his dad to do things that his dad considered manly or masculine. And then James Jr., feeling completely out of place doing those things, And most of them just, the two of them just feeling more and more alienated from each other as a result. In fact, during high school, a rift started to open between father and son in the relationship. James Jr. felt like nearly all of the time he had to make a choice. He could either pursue things that he was interested in, or he could earn the affection and attention of his dad. He couldn't have both. So they grew further and further apart. To this day, when James Jr. hangs out with his dad, which is rare, he can't fight the nagging feeling that he has been a colossal disappointment to his dad. He now struggles with depression, crippling depression at times. The older he gets and the more therapy he does, the more he is convinced that at the root of a lot of it is the relationship or lack thereof with his dad. I wanna tell you another story about a woman named Kira. Kira grew up in a city outside of London. She says for much of her childhood, people would use the term tomboy to describe her. And by that, they mostly just meant that she liked sports and wearing t-shirts over playing with dolls and wearing dresses. Going through puberty was difficult and awkward for Kira, like it is for a lot of girls. She felt uncomfortable with the changes taking place in her body. And eventually, she started experiencing an attraction to other girls. All of this made Kira feel very uncomfortable within herself. Before long, Kira says her parents started asking her if she wanted to be a boy. Up until then, she had never even considered that as an option but she started to research it online. She began seeing a psychiatrist who soon referred her to something called the Gender Identity Development Service. This organization very quickly, without gathering a lot of data, diagnosed Kira with gender dysphoria. They approved chemical and eventually surgical transition for her. She was put on puberty blockers at age 16. She began receiving testosterone at age 17, and when she was 20, she had a double mastectomy to remove her breasts. She began living her life as a man. But just a couple years into all of this, Kira said she started feeling more and more out of place than ever within her body. She didn't feel better about being a man. She felt worse. So she eventually began the process of detransitioning back to female, but some of that was not possible for her anymore. Her voice had been forever altered, she had likely become permanently infertile, her reproductive organs had atrophied due to the meds that she was taking, none of which could be undone at this point. In the year 2020, Kira filed a lawsuit against the clinic that oversaw her transition. Her legal team actually won the case with the court determining that children being treated at the clinic were being subjected to, quote, what amounted to experimental treatment with life-altering outcomes. Kira was one of those children. James Jr. and Kira are two people's lives, who were substantially impacted by what they were taught and what they were told about gender. And they're not alone. If you pay attention to the media, that stories like theirs are actually everywhere. Countless people whose lives and futures are caught in the crosshairs of the gender debate taking place. Today we begin a new series called Intentional, God's design for our gender. Over the next seven weeks, we'll take a deep dive into what the scriptures have to say about our gender and our identity and how we think about those things well as followers of Jesus. We'll be dissecting a lot of ideas, sacred and secular, related to those topics. But I begin with those two stories this morning because as we discuss all of this the next seven weeks... I don't want us to lose sight of something very important. And that's that amidst all the the thinking and arguing and debating happening about gender ideology, at the core of it all is people, human beings. Real people whose real lives are being impacted by the opinions that we hold and espouse about all of these things. Impacted sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. The things that we believe and say and communicate to others about gender can alter people's very futures substantially and sometimes permanently which means it is very important that we learn to discuss these topics well. It's important that we don't just say what, what feels popular or what feels right. It's important that we don't just parrot what our particular political party thinks or what our group of friends tend to post online. It's important that we get this right, if for no other reason than because people's lives and well-beings hang in the balance. So, in this series, we're going to speak philosophically and ideologically and scientifically, and as always, we're going to speak biblically. But through it all, we are also going to speak personally and pastorally. At the end of the day, I personally have very little interest in just adding to the noisy debate around these topics. I'm not a gender studies professor, I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a social scientist, I'm not a psychologist, I'm a pastor which means I am primarily interested in helping and caring for people. And specifically, I am interested in helping people know and follow Jesus well. And whether we are comfortable with it or not, our understanding of gender matters in that conversation. As we just saw in those two stories I mentioned, it is important. Now, our understanding of gender is not of ultimate importance, It's not more important than everything else. It's not more important than the gospel, but it's also not of zero importance in that conversation. We can't just dismiss it or dodge it any more than we can dodge what the Bible teaches about money or sex or justice or forgiveness or any number of other topics that it speaks on. If we care about people and if we care about God, we should also care what God has to say about gender. So over the next couple months, we are going to talk about what it means that God created man and woman in his image. We're going to talk about what masculinity is and what it isn't. We're going to talk about what femininity is and what it isn't. We're going to talk about what it looks like for men and women to live in healthy platonic friendships. With one another. We're going to talk about what it looks like for men and women to be partners in marriage. And finally, we are going to discuss how to approach the transgender conversation as followers of Jesus. We are covering a lot of ground in this series. But today, believe it or not, I don't really want to talk about hardly any of that. Today, I simply want to talk about God. And here's why I think we have to start there before we get to any of the rest of it. Let's just assume for the sake of discussion that God indeed does have things to say about our gender and how we understand and live out of our gender. Assuming that that's true, that leaves all of us with the question, why should we listen to God? Why should we listen to God? That's the question we are all asking. We're asking, can God be trusted with anything, but specifically with what he says about my gender? That is really the question underneath all the others, whether we're talking about gender or any other aspect of our lives as followers of Jesus. So that feels like an important question to start our discussion with this morning. Can God be trusted? So to answer that question this morning, I, I want to offer what I think are three really good reasons that we see in the scriptures to trust God on all of this, and ultimately on why we should trust God in every arena of our lives. Now, just to be clear, there are way more than three reasons that we should trust God, I and mean, there's way more than that. But I do think there are at least three big categories that we see in the scriptures for why we can trust him. And my hope is that by giving you these reasons and us really wrestling with them, it can give us a foundation to build on for the rest of the series as we talk about some things that at least for a lot of people in our church and outside the church are more difficult to trust God in for us personally. But I want to give you some reasons that I think we can trust God on everything. First reason that I'll give you is that God created us. We can trust him because he created us. Take a look with me at the first sentence in the entire Bible. We'll put this up on the screen. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, b- before there was you or I or anything else, there was God. And that God chose to create. This verse says he created, quote, the heavens and the earth. Most scholars agree that that phrase, the heavens and the earth, is an ancient Hebrew expression that means essentially everything. It's an expression like we would say from top to bottom or from head to toe. What the author of Genesis means in this verse is that everything you and I see and know in the world around us was created by God in the beginning. And then as the crown jewel of his creation, it says God created us. He created human beings. Now, I'm aware that different followers of Jesus interpret parts of Genesis 1 and 2 differently from one another. They disagree on how God created the world and exactly when God created the world and how many days he took to create the world. But do you know what pretty much all of them agree on? That he created it. That God created the world in the first place and that what he he created includes us as human beings. We're also told that God created humanity with a purpose, with a stated intention. That that purpose is peppered all over the pages of Genesis one and two. God had an intention in making us, which is where we got the name for this series. Our God is an intentional God, and he has intention and purpose behind everything he does, including creating you and I. Now here's why that matters for our series. If God created us with an intention, it seems like he would be the one to ask about how we live out of that intention. He's the creator, which means in theory, he's got the answers that we need about how to be human. If God did not create us, or more broadly, if we weren't created with any intention at all, well, then there's no need to listen to God about how we should live. And for that matter, we don't really need to listen to anybody about how to live, except for ourselves. If you and I are, as some have suggested, just animals with time and chance on our side, that means we can actually live however we want. We can do whatever we want. We can say whatever we want. We can become whoever we want, which to many people sounds like a really compelling way to live, a really compelling way to view their life. If we're all just here by accident, then no one can tell us what to do or what not to do. But there's also a problem with that view, a a pretty massive one, in fact, if you have a life that shares paths with anybody else in your life. Several prominent atheists have actually pointed out this problem with this view before, and here's the problem. If you and I can live however we want to live, that means we can't tell anybody else how they should live or how they shouldn't, what they can or can't do, what they can or can't say, what they can or can't become, even when their actions negatively impact us as a result. You see, if there is no such thing as design, there's no purpose, there's no intention, then that actually means there's no such thing as ethics either. Because remember, everyone gets to chart their own course. Everyone gets to create their own purpose. So, in this view, you can say that you don't personally like someone else's actions, but you can't ever say that their actions are wrong. Put simply, if you hold this view, you forfeit the ability to ever use the word should. You can't say that anyone should or shouldn't do anything, only that you would personally prefer that they do or not do it. Now, here's why that's particularly a problem when we start talking about ideas of gender and identity. Most of the discussions happening in our world right now about gender are actually conversations about ethics. How should we define the words man and woman? What should or shouldn't a trans person be able to do about their situation when their experience doesn't match their biological makeup? What counsel should a mental health professional give or not give to a person experiencing gender dysphoria? What medications or surgeries should we or shouldn't we recommend for those people? What pronouns should we or shouldn't we use? It's pretty much all a conversation about ethics. But without a purpose, there's no way for us to agree on ethics, So so all we're left to do is yell our personal preferences at each other louder and more aggressively and then insist that other people are crazy or evil or both for not agreeing with our perspective. And that is how we got into the mess that we're currently in. Now, maybe you would hear all of that and you would actually add a qualifier to the ethic that I laid out just a second ago. Maybe you would say, well, well, I do believe that people should be able to do whatever they want to do as long as their actions don't hurt anybody else. That's a really common ethic in our world. And I would say to you, that, that sounds like a great ethic. I might would even be inclined to join you in living by that ethic at times, but the problem is still if someone were to come to us and say, well, why is that the right standard and ethic to live by? All you and I could say is, well, it feels like it is. And I would argue that at the end of the day, something feeling right is not the best moral foundation for building an ethical framework on top of. Now, I understand that all of that is a bit philosophical, but I I lay it out because I want to help you see why intention matters, practically speaking. Why, for followers of Jesus, it matters that God created us, because that's where we find our intention, that's where we find our purpose, and therefore, that is where we draw our ethics from. If God created us, then it would follow that he has the right to tell us how he created us to live. That only makes sense. So so listen, in this series, as we go through the next six weeks after today, there will be quite a few things that we talk about that as followers of Jesus, quite honestly, we can disagree on with each other. Some things that are open-handed, so to speak. But listen, if we don't agree that God created us, that he has a design and a purpose for us, and that knowing him looks like honoring that purpose as much as we can, we're not going to agree on much anything else. If you can't get there, you're going to have a hard time with most anything else that we say in this series because that is foundational to following Jesus, believing that God created us with intention. We can trust God because he's our creator. Second reason that we can trust God is because he's smarter than us. Because he's smarter than us. Take a look with me on the screen at Isaiah 55, verses eight and nine. It says this, "'For my thoughts are not your thoughts,' Neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts So when our son Wit was about 3 years old he started paying really close attention to his surroundings especially when we were in the car, driving him to certain places around town. So before long, he learned the route by heart to school, to this church building, and to Target, you know, the three most important places that there are in life. So he knew how to get to all of those places from our house, but, but because he knew the way to those places, that also meant that if we ever took an alternative route to get to one of those three places, he would get really confused and sometimes very distraught even. So I remember taking him to school one morning and, and I saw on the map that there was construction on our normal route and so I decided to take a different way to his school. But he knew we were going to school and so he had a full blown meltdown when he started realizing the way that we were going. So he's in the back seat, he just knew we were gonna be late to school. I somehow transferred my type A tendencies to my son and so being late is like his worst fear in the universe. I don't, don't ask me why that happened, it just did. So he's having a full-blown meltdown in the back of the car. I mean, he's just screaming, Dad, this is the wrong way. This isn't the way to school. You're going the wrong way. We're going to be late. I'm never going to get to school. Ah! (laughs) Just a total catastrophe in his mind. Didn't matter how much I tried to explain to him that what construction was, which is a very difficult thing to explain to a three-year-old, what construction was or why we weren't going the normal way to school, all he could focus on was that he didn't know the way we were going, and that was going to impact him negatively. When in fact, I was actually trying to avoid the precise scenario that he wanted to avoid, being late to school, right? I was just going about solving that problem in a different way than he he could understand. Here's my point. If that is the difference in the level of understanding between a human father and a human son, how much more is the difference in level of understanding between an infinite, all-knowing God and us as finite human beings? Probably pretty substantial difference, right? His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. God is smarter than us. And we can trust him precisely because he is smarter than us. So uh, there are actually two different types of trust that I've seen in the world. The the first type of trust is the type of trust that I have for some of my good friends. So So I trust some of my friends often because of how similar they are to me, right? I I trust them primarily because at least in a lot of scenarios, they're going to make very similar decisions to the ones I would have made if I was in the same situation. They're going to do things very similarly to how I would have done them. I trust them, but really, if I'm honest, that's just an extension of trust in myself, right? I, I trust them primarily because I trust myself and they're kind of like me. But just so we understand, that's not really the type of trust that the scriptures teach us to have in God. We don't trust God because of how similar he is to us. We trust God in many ways because of how different he is than us, because he knows things that we don't know because he comprehends things that we can't comprehend. He sees things coming that we don't see coming. He understands things about us personally that we don't even understand about ourselves. And it is precisely because he is so much different than us, so much smarter, so much wiser than us, that we can trust him. That is the type of trust that we're invited to have in God. I think this becomes especially evident in our lives in moments where God commands or teaches things that we don't instinctively agree with off the bat. There are a lot of commands in the Bible that make rational and emotional sense to us, right? Do not murder. Yeah, absolutely. I get that. Murder hurts people. It's not a good idea. So I'm with that. Let's not murder. That sounds like a great idea, God love one another as yourself, as Jesus says in the Gospels. Absolutely, right? I'm all on board. I, I understand why it is helpful for me to love other people and treat other people the way that I would prefer to be treated. Absolutely. But then there's things like flee sexual immorality. Well, hold on a second on that, God because I don't know that you understand, a lot of people don't live that way anymore, and it's honestly kind of difficult to live that way. And, and to be honest, if I live that way and, and other people catch wind of it, well, I'm going to get ridiculed and poked fun of, and that's going to be really difficult for me. So honestly, maybe, maybe you meant to say something else when you said flee sexual immorality. Uh, how about Jesus saying, Anyone who finds his life will lose it, and anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. I don't know about that, Jesus. I'm not sure about that. I I don't really think losing my life is the best way to find it. I kind of think finding it is the best way to find it. (laughs) See, my point is that if you follow Jesus long enough, occasionally... He is going to ask you to do some things that make very little rational and emotional sense to you. He's going to command some things that don't jive very much with what you inherently believe or what you inherently think. But often, those are the moments that reveal whether we trust God or whether we just trust God as as an extension of ourselves. Is it possible that God could have a reason for commanding something that you don't yet understand? Is it possible that God could have a reason for commanding something that you won't ever understand? And in those moments, do you go with what he says? Or do you redesign what he says to be something more like what you would have said? Pastor and author Tim Keller is fond of saying in a number of his books that if your version of God never disagrees with you or contradicts you or confronts your belief, that's a pretty good sign that you've just invented a godlike version of yourself. His ways aren't our ways, His thoughts are not our thoughts. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so is His wisdom above our wisdom his knowledge above our knowledge. And it is precisely because of that that we can trust him, because he is smarter than us. Final reason I'll give you for today, we can trust God finally because he is for us. Because he's for us. So this language of God being for us is threaded through a lot of the Bible, honestly, Old Testament and New but one place that I think we see it laid out very clearly and concisely is in Romans chapter 8, one of the most glorious chapters in the entire scriptures, in my opinion. Romans chapter 8 says this. We'll put it up on the screen. Paul says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So here in Romans 8, Paul has been building to this point that he's making for quite a while. In context, he's talking about the reality of suffering. He, he knows that going through suffering as human beings can often challenge or even threaten our ability to feel like we can trust in the goodness of God. Anybody who's been through suffering knows that that is the case. So, so Paul wants to help his audience remember that God is trustworthy even when and if their life circumstances don't seem to reflect. Like that. That's what he's trying to help them with. And he gives them what I consider to be a pretty rock-solid reason for believing that God can be trusted. And it goes like this. If God is for us, who can be against us? If the creator of the world, who set everything in the world in motion and sustains everything by the word of his power, if that God is for us, then what could possibly be against us in a way that overshadows that? And then Paul talks about specifically how they can know that God is for them, how they can trust that reality about God. He says that if God did not even spare his own son, Jesus, but gave him up for us all, surely the God who does that is trustworthy in other arenas of life. Surely he's worth listening to. Surely he is worth following. He's worth loving and obeying even when his commands don't make 100% rational sense to us. He's worth knowing even when the worst of the worst hits in our life. He's worth trusting because he has proven at the cross that he can be trusted. He's worth trusting because he has proven at the cross that he is committed to our good. God is for us, and that's why we can trust him. Here's why that matters for the next six weeks of this series. If you are in the room right now, and you haven't yet experienced Jesus rescuing you out of your sin through the cross and resurrection well, then I wouldn't necessarily expect for much of what we say in this series to be compelling to you. You're welcome to be here as always. You're welcome to show up and listen and process and ask questions. All of that is completely available to you, but I wouldn't expect for you to be completely on board with really any of what we say. Because if you haven't had the experience of being rescued by Jesus out of your sin, then it's not going to make sense. Now, we want that for you. We want you to have that experience, but we would suggest that you start there. Is Jesus who he says he is? Did he accomplish what the Bible says that he accomplished? Because according to Romans 8, that is the starting point for learning to trust God. But with that said, let me speak for a second to those of us that have had that experience of Jesus rescuing us out of our sin. Those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus, that say we belong to Jesus. If that's true of us, then I would argue you have every reason in the world to trust God with what he says. I would argue that he's actually proven himself more trustworthy in your life than any other person that you could consider trusting. The the rationale that the scriptures use over and over and over again is that if God was good enough to come and rescue you out of your sin, not even sparing his own son for your sake, then surely he is good enough to follow with every aspect of your life. If he's trustworthy enough to save us, he's good enough to lead us. If he's good enough to save our very lives, then he is good enough to show us the best possible way to live. So I don't know how you came in this room this morning. I don't know where you are with Jesus. I don't know where you are with trusting him or following him. I don't know where you are with even wanting to hear what he has to say about life or gender or ethics or anything else, to be honest. But here's what I want to invite you into during this series, and, and it might even sound a little bit silly or trivial to some people, but I wonder if it might be a good place to start for others of us. I want to ask you as we enter into the next six weeks of this series that you would be willing to give the creator of the universe at least the same level of trust that you would give a physical trainer at the gym. Let me explain that. Let's say you're at the gym working out and you're using a piece of equipment there at the gym, and and somebody who has spent years and years professionally training people told you how to use that piece of equipment a little bit better. They, They made a suggestion about your form or your approach or your pacing or whatever the case might be. If you knew that that person had been training people for, say, 15, 20 years of their life that they were certified as a physical trainer and you had just started using that machine a couple weeks ago, wouldn't you at least be inclined to hear them out? I would hope so, right? If you've got any amount of humility in your body that you would be willing to at least hear them out and go, they might know something that I don't know. Or perhaps different analogy for those of us that have not been to the gym in a while. (laughs) Different metaphor. What if you were to give God the same level of trust, at least the same level of trust, that you give your therapist? Think about your therapist for a second. Generally speaking, you go to a therapist because you need help with something You go to a therapist because they've received years of training in their field. They've seen quite a few clients, ideally, who struggle in similar ways to you, and they are licensed officially to do what they do. If they're not licensed, maybe see a different therapist, but they're licensed to do what they do. They've been officially recognized at having the ability to do what they do. So In that context, there's a certain level of trust that you give your therapist when they speak to you about issues surrounding mental health, at least in theory. That's how the relationship works. Now, listen, I'm not trying to undersell anything, okay? What I ultimately want for every single person in this room is that we would trust Jesus far more than we trust a trainer or a counselor, So the end goal is far more than that. That's the floor of trusting God, not the ceiling, okay? Just so we're clear, I want far more than that for you, a far greater level of trust than that. But I am trying to ask you, if you're new to the whole following Jesus thing, wouldn't it make sense that God would get at least that level of authority in your life? At least that amount of trust at least that amount of say in how we live, how we think about ourselves. My prayer is that we all go well beyond that and we trust God with everything. But the starting point is learning to trust God at least a little bit more than you trust yourself. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, one of the first verses that I ever learned or memorized in the entire Bible when I was a kid, says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding. If you're here and you are new to church or new to Jesus, I want you to know he is patient with you. He realizes that it takes time to learn to trust him with everything. And he offers help to do that via his spirit along the way. He is patient with you. But listen, it all starts with being willing to second guess your own understanding. It it all starts with being willing to consider the idea that your conclusions about life may not be as solid as you think they are. And that creates a path, a doorway to trusting in someone else who does know. So as we enter into this series, we are going to be asking and attempting to answer a lot of questions, some of them very difficult questions for some of us, some of them very difficult answers. But underneath every single question that we ask and answer during this series, and your response to those questions, is actually one core question for all of us, and that's, can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? That is the question that all of us as followers of Jesus are wrestling with constantly, constantly. Whether your particular struggle is your gender, your sexuality, your money, your anger, your anxiety, your addiction, whatever the particular pressure point is for you, the question is actually the same for each and every one of us. Is God trustworthy? Is he trustworthy? Can we trust him? And based on the reasons that I've laid out for you today, I can tell you that I personally have found him to be very trustworthy. I can also tell you that in this room, there's 150 some odd people at least who have also landed on that answer that God can be trusted. I can tell you story after story of men and women down throughout history who have concluded that God could be trusted even when faced with unbelievable amounts of suffering and difficulty in their life. But at the end of the day, it's a question that you have to answer for you Can I trust God? So we're going to respond this morning by coming to the tables together and partaking in something called communion. Communion is, is where we remember the single act that for Paul in Romans 8 proved, to be, proved that God can be trusted. The moment where God did not even spare his own son for us, but graciously gave him up for us all. When we come to these tables around the room and we partake in the bread and the cup. When we do that, we are calling to mind and celebrating the moment when God displayed his trustworthiness for all to see. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you've decided based on that that God can be trusted, you're invited to come to the table and celebrate that with us. If you're new in the room and that's not true for you yet, feel no pressure. You don't have to go through the motions just because other people are doing it. Maybe just sit and wrestle with the question, can this God be trusted? Ask him to give you some type of revelation to whether or not that is true. And I believe that he will. Let me pray for us as we close.